Amen. Teaching others also, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 2. We'll begin there today. We've done an introduction and a few lessons, sessions on 1 Samuel chapter 1. And now we're going to look at, begin in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Now rather than try to take the time to relay the foundation every single time we get into this book, we're kind of treating it expositorily basically. So we're expecting you to pick up and uh, pick up where it's at. And if you're not familiar with the background, the backstory, as they say, when they're telling a story or writing a story, then I trust that you'll read it, First Samuel 1, and then you'll also listen to those lessons if they are helpful. Now, I've got written uh, over my, the chapter here in my teaching Bible, Hannah's Prayer, and the picture is that we understand something here that God puts so much into things that we don't need to strain in a gnat, swallow a camel, and we don't need to hyper-divide. We don't need to get stuck on the trees and not see the forest. But you cannot miss the fact that there are, through this, woven prophetic things, second advent type things, and, and advent references. So Hannah is praying, but let's grab the context of what she's doing. Her prayer is going to rejoice in the Lord and it's going to address some spiritual issues and stuff like that. And um, it runs all the way down to verse, end of verse 10. And she rejoices, but let's put it into context so we'll understand where we're at with this prayer. Hannah had gone a long time wishing that she could bear a child for her husband. She'd gone a long time specifically wishing that she could bear a child, a son, for her husband. She was beside herself. She was grief-stricken. She was sorrowful. Just it, When it says bitterness in chapter 1, verse 10, not bitter at God. Bitter as in life just didn't have a good taste to it because of this one thing. Let me say this in the age we live in. There's a great danger in a person allowing themselves or someone very close to them to get to the point where they got to have something even at the expense of doing right. And there are stories, true stories of people doing wrong just to be able to try to have a child or even to get hold of somebody else's child. But what Hannah did was she went to the Lord. She bore the burden, but she went to God about it. She went to God about it. The prophet Eli saw her there. He rebuked her, and he was mistaken at the time how he read it. But he gave her a promise, and she bore a child. Now, before she had ever conceived, she had promised God that if he would give her a man-child, a son, that she would give him back to God completely. Okay? So the Bible says a, a, an amazing passage of Scripture in verse 18 of chapter 1. She said, Let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. So by faith, this woman's whole life changed. By faith, by faith. Her countenance was no more sad. The bitterness of her soul was passed by faith. They go back home from going to the feast there at Jerusalem and then they, uh, she conceives. 
and then she bears a son. The time comes around for them to go back up for one of the feasts, and, and her husband, Elkanah, and all the family are going, and she stays behind, and she says to him that she's going to stay behind because when she does take him, she wants it to be a one-way street. In other words, she is determined to keep her vow to the Lord, and her husband approved of the vow, allowed it. He could have disallowed it, and that would have freed her from it if that's what you know, it was meant to be. So when the time comes, she brings Samuel and she presents him to Eli. And now she has left him, verse 28, therefore also I have lent him unto the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent unto the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. So she leaves him there. And then this prayer is the result of the only fruit she's born in life being left at the tabernacle and she's headed home. Now, God's going to give her more children, but she doesn't know that for sure yet. She may hope that the Lord has, you know, quote, opened up her womb, that sort of thing, but he doesn't know. She doesn't know that for sure that he has. So Hannah prayed, chapter 2, verse 1, and said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken. They that stumbled are girded with strength. They that were full have hired themselves for bread, have hired out themselves for bread, and they that were hungry ceased, so that the barren hath borne seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raises up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he hath set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of his saints and the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth and he shall give strength unto his king and exhort the horn of his anointed. And Elkanah went to Ramah to his house, and the child did minister unto the Lord before Eli, the priest. Now let's go back and walk through this. We'll see what we can get through in this particular session. So notice that she said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. So she's rejoicing after giving away her only son. Now that's godlike. And it's prophetic of what the father is going to do, John 3, 16, that he gave his only begotten son. My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. You know, rejoicing like that and praise is a victory and it demonstrates a victory to the spirit world. I don't know that you understand, child of God, how important your prayer closet is. How important your personal time in life is when there's nobody around, whether you're driving a truck, whether you're doing stuff around the house, whether you're mowing a lawn, whatever, Time that's just you and your chores. 
I don't think you understand that those are special times and the spirit world is looking on. Those are special times. What we praise God for and what situations we praise God in brings him glory. She says, for example, my heart rejoiceth in the Lord. Now, if you're not careful, you can rejoice in things. If she rejoiced only in her son, she probably would have been tempted to keep him. Okay? But she rejoices in the Lord. Now, it says, she says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. That horn is a sign of power, a sign of victory. Uh, many uh, different headdress and things like that that were worn <coughs> all through the years of, of combat and stuff. And of course, they're bringing all that stuff back, put into a fictional context. What she's doing is exalting the fact that she bore a son for her husband. Mine horn is exalted. When, when she bears a son, Elkanah is exalted. When we bear fruit, God the Father and the Lord Jesus are exalted. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. You see, you can't stop the mouth of the enemy, but you can use your mouth to praise the enemy. You can use your mouth and enlarge it over the enemy by praising. Now she says, there's none holy as the Lord. I had somebody ask me about that one. Say, well, doesn't it mean there's none holy but the Lord? No, no. You got to read your Bible, your King James Bible. He said, there's none holy as the Lord. Are there other holy things? Listen, in your Bible, if you're writing it down, Luke 170 speaks of the holy prophets. Speaks of them again in Acts 3.21 in several places, okay? It says, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, First. Uh, 2 Peter 1.21. talks about the holy city. He took Jesus up into the holy city in Matthew 4 in that mount of temptation. Jesus spoke in Matthew 25.31 of the holy angels. So there are holy things. I didn't bother to knock on board you with the whole list. You can look it up. Nowadays especially you can. <laughs> okay? <clears throat> but notice that it's amazing what she says. There is none holy as the Lord. This is important. I, I find that Christians come up with statements that are absurd even by God's standard. I heard a fellow say one time, he said, no marriage can last without God. But that's not true. There are heathen people that have married, been married 40 and 50 years and they don't give any glory to God whatsoever. In fact, they give glory to each other. So you must not grab thoughts, philosophies that you think will convince somebody or even glorify God by saying stuff that with just a little bit of examination, someone says, well, that's not true. But this statement is true. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee. So well, there's all kinds of stuff. Yeah, but look up at that throne and there's none beside God. Everything's lower than God. The one who wanted to be beside and above God in Isaiah 14 and in Ezekiel 28 was Lucifer. So this thing of self-elevation and reaching your highest and all that, now, now, now hear me out. You ought to want to be the best submitted Christian you can be to God. 
But that doesn't mean you'll be the best at any one thing. I heard a great illustration. <laughs> An illustration was that Pavarotti, when he was a kid, was exposed to singing and he had a potential voice. And then he was also exposed to teaching. And I believe it was his dad, he asked him, he said, what should I do? And he said, you can't sit on two chairs at once. Well, you'll fall between them. He said, choose your chair. So he chose a chair and that was singing. And it took him, all, added up about 14 years before he got to even the main place, like the Metropolitan Opera and all that, where they sang. But he had to choose one chair. Now, child of God, your first chair is God Almighty. It's the Lord. It's being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Not a doer of a certain ministry. Not called to a certain place. Not even a certain, you know, role. It's being a Christian. There is none beside thee. Neither is there any rock like. See, there it is again. Like our God. And there's not. There are some rocks. But our, our rock, their rock is not our rock. So neither is there any rock like our God. There are people who are pretty stable without God. Their rock is stable, but he's not like our God. Not like our rock, the capital R. And I really believe, now, now you say, well, it's prophetic. It is. You go over to like Deuteronomy 32, and, and um, even in verse 8 here, you've got a millennial reference about raising up the poor, etc. But the picture is something to build on, to stand on, Something that will bring a recompense and reward. Something that is solid. Okay? So, when we trust God, okay, what we're saying is, there is no rock like our rock. Capital R, God. And it's so important, child of God, to make sure that you go back to the very foundation. Our anchor holds. Why? It's in the rock the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in the rock, the Father of the Old Testament. There is none as holy as the Lord. None holy as the Lord. There is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. That is so powerful. And child of God, please listen. If you really want to help people, have intelligent conversations, biblically intelligent conversations. There are people that have established whole lives without God. And they've been successful. Some of them even been moral, you might say, and, and uh, community leaders, etc., etc., even made good decisions. But they weren't on the rock. So when it comes time to stand, they won't have anything to stand on when they stand before God because their rock is gone, the rock of this world. So you see, it's important to understand that you will not help people by making statements that just the average person, if I can unravel your statement, anybody can. I'm as simple as they come when it comes to that stuff. If I can unravel it, anybody can. And I've cringed hearing people say, been out witnessing with them, talking to souls, whatever. Hear them say things out on the job. And I'm like, you know what? If that person gives 10 seconds thought to this thing, they're going to laugh at you as a Christian and say, well, you know, that's not true. You say, well, is there any God like God? No, that's what she said, like and as. Are there some 
gods, small g-o-d-s, yeah. In the Bible, are there holy prophets and holy men of God and holy angels and holy city? Yes. He even called that sanctified bread, holy bread. But there's none holy as the Lord. And neither is there any rock like our God. That's the point. There are rocks that people have stood on, but not like our God. And the only rock that you can stand on at the judgment is God. So verse 3. Talk no more so exceeding proudly. Now, in the immediate context, it probably has something to do with the fact that uh, she had been afflicted, you might say. Okay? Um, her adversary in chapter 1, verse 6, provoked her to make her fret. And so she's saying, talk no more so exceeding proudly. When God did this thing, he, as we say, shut the mouth of the critics. So real prayer may address these kind of things. Now watch. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. So there's a sense in which our prayers are directed, even in our prayer closet, at the enemy. Uh, I, I haven't had this happen to me, but I, doubt, I, I don't doubt the veracity of the account where Martin Luther one day was in a, such a spiritual battle that he grabbed an inkwell, which is what they had to use to write with. And it'd be like you throwing your ink pen across the room, threw the inkwell at the wall, and, and his argument with the devil. I haven't had that happen to me, but I'm going to tell you, I can surely understand it. I don't doubt its veracity. And so when she says these things, remember that <clears throat> you've let God, she's let God weigh out the situation. And she says, by him actions are weighed. Leave it with God, but in your prayer life, I, I, I'm going to just stop for a moment here, a little parentheses, okay? Without trying to appear, you know, overly super spiritual or whatever, I can tell you that it is appropriate and it is effective and powerful in your prayer time to give God the glory in the face of the enemy. Now don't be arrogant because it's not you that gave the victory. But you can be confident. And I think that it's important for us to realize it says talk no more so exceeding proudly. So there's some times when you can say to the spirit world, when you can say to the thoughts in your heart and mind, you know what, we're done with this. God has proven himself and, and this, this particular thing is settled. Let not arrogancy come out. You can just, and, and it might be your old nature sometimes. You say, oh, shut up, old nature. I, I, sometimes you, I don't know what my new name written down in glory is. So I can't talk to myself by that. As far as I believe, I believe you are your new nature. So I can say to, old, to Michael, I can say, Michael, shut up. Because that was the one I was born. That's my natural birth. That's my natural nature, my flesh. I say, oh, shut up, Michael. Now, I don't know what my new name is, but my new person is telling him, shut up. Amen. And in picture, Hannah has a whole new life ahead of her now. She has, she has a whole new, she has given birth. She has given life. Now she's given him to God, fulfilled her vows. And there's just, there's so much joy in her heart. 
For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions await God knows. Do you know sometimes it's okay to understand that you can say to yourself, God knows. God knows. I, I don't know about you, but man, that phrase has helped me so much. Now, I know people say it sometimes, and they say it with, with uh, you know, bitterly or even vengeance or God knows. No, I don't mean it. I don't mean it that way. I'm just telling you. God knows. God knows. Now, be careful. Be careful thinking that in every situation, there's only one right person and one wrong person because probably times when we were basically right, we've contributed some. Yeah. But God knows. Verse 3, For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. This is where we leave it with God. God knows. Verse 4, The bows of the mighty men are broken, and they that stumbled are girded with strength. Now here is where you can't miss that there's a spirit world analogy going on. Now, I got to tell you this. I understand the physical world. I understand, you know, there is there are battles and there is violence and there is there are weapons and all that sort of thing and there are martial training, martial arts training stuff and been through it myself. But the picture I get that's more vivid to me than life itself and than looking at something I can see with my eyes is the battle in the spiritual world because it's the real battle. And it's the battle that was going on before you were born. And it's the battle that will go on after you've lived on earth. And the picture is, look, look what he says. He said, the bows of the mighty men are broken. And they that stumbled are girded with strength. It's as if you took and snapped somebody's bow and arrows over their knee. You know the old cartoon, you know, where <clears throat> the superhero or whatever puts his finger in the barrel of the gun and the guy pulls the trigger and it blows the end of the barrel up? Or the guy takes the guy's rifle and grabs it by the barrel and bends it over the, hits it and bends it over the log or over the tree? That's the picture. It, it's taking away their strength. The bows of the mighty men are broken. Well, what are you going to do? Throw, try to throw the arrow? They that stumbled are girded with strength. So now what we have is a contrast. So we've got the strong being made weak and the weak being made strong. Verse 5, they that were full have hired out themselves for bread, just like the prodigal son did, like anybody has to do if they lose everything. Then he goes on to say, and they that were hungry ceased. In other words, some who were full are now empty, and some who were empty are now full. So that the barren hath borne seven. Now, I don't know if this is going to be prophetic of her. She does bear other children. And fullness often leads to sin in some, and then God has to take them back to barrenness. Because then barrenness, barrenness and humility often leads to fruit. Humble thyself under the mighty hand of God, and he shall lift you up. Cast in thy care upon him, for he cares for you. So, she might be claiming it by faith. Uh, we know in verse, uh, look in this chapter, at round verse uh, 21. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bare three sons and two daughters. And the child Samuel grew before the Lord. So, if he wasn't part of that group, she bore six. If he was, he's five. So, she's claiming something by faith. And of course, that seven is that completed number. 
She hath borne seven. Now watch. And she that hath many children is waxed feeble. It's possible. It's possible that uh, Hannah's adversary, you might say, Penina, didn't have any more children. It's possible God shut it up because of her haughty spirit. It wouldn't be the first time God did it. He did it to Michael, David's wife, when she despised him and came into town, and she had to raise adopted children. So in verse 6, the Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. And the great picture is this, that when you see and acknowledge God's hand in life and death, you walk more circumspectly. You're giving him everyday sovereignty. Don't be afraid of the word sovereignty is the word sovereign is king. He is king. I'm not going to let somebody take a word out of my vocabulary or practice out of my vocabulary just because they took and twisted a bunch of scriptures and put it with it. People are because of hyper-Calvinism, the five points of two, they're afraid of sovereignty. I'm not afraid of sovereignty. Why, if he's not sovereign, we're in trouble. We are of all men most miserable. All right, verse seven. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. Now, that's a hard truth. Poverty can be of God. I, that I know many whoever who are listening you're cringing at that statement you are cringing at the thought that poverty can be of god but it is the lord maketh poor and maketh rich there's dangers on both ends you can be poor and steal he says in proverbs or you can be rich and forget god but he make he does both he does both and it's a hard truth you know, I think one, one thing that poverty can help you do is prepare for abundance so that you don't consume it upon your lust. Learn a simplistic, contented lifestyle, and then when God blesses you, you can become a channel of blessing to others. That's very important. I've said for decades and decades to young couples, determine what the cap will be on your standard of living when you start out. Agree on it together. I mean, even write it down. I'm not talking about some prenup thing, but write it down and review it. And then when God blesses you, you become a channel of blessing because you don't keep consuming it upon your lust. And then you don't consume it upon your children. You don't consume it upon your grandchildren. You put it into the work of God. You and I's children and grandchildren are not the work of God. Now, it's important that we do everything we can to do right, but we're to teach them. Do you know what's happened with missions? The biggest thing that's happened with missions is there's a generational drop-off. There's two missing generations here of those who knew to live frugally or basically so they could do something for the work of God. You say, what's that got to do with verse 7? Well, he maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. Uh, I've got written in the margin of this Bible, your lot in life. Accept your lot in life. Now, you should work if you can improve that ability to earn. But I'm going to tell you, earning more is not always the measure of success. I would say in at least 50% of the situations, earning more is not the measure of success. Let's read verse 8 with this. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes 
Now, we know he's done that historically. We know he's done that in the Bible. We know that. We've seen that happen. We know that there are so many Second Advent promises about helping the children of Israel and the people on the earth at the time that had been persecuted. And he says, to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. So there's so many promises in your Bible that God says, I want to give you some glory. First, write it down. Read 1 Corinthians 15 on on the resurrection. Okay? Make note of the verses that the Lord Jesus Christ did when he told us that he was going to give us an inheritance. Make note of the fact that he, and to make them inherit the throne of glory for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he hath set the world upon them. The safest place to be is on the rock and living on the rock and earning on the rock, giving on the rock, walking through your daily life on the rock and worshiping on the rock. Verse nine, he will keep the feet of his saints and the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength shall no man prevail. I don't know if we understand sometimes that it is useless to struggle against God. It is futile to scheme against God, and He will keep your feet. They might be bare feet sometimes. They might be very basically clad, you know, the poor but he'll keep your feet and the wicked shall be silent in darkness. Their day is coming. And remember what we said down there in verse five, God knows <clears throat> for by strength shall no man prevail. Verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces out of heaven. Shall he thunder upon them? The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth and he shall give strength unto his king and exhort the horn of his anointed. There is no doubt that this is, a second advent reference also. But the lesson is that anybody who tries to take on the Lord has lost their mind. They are crazy. God's not looking to hurt anybody. But when you rebel, you're going to get the price that you've got coming. He shall judge the ends of the earth. He shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. We know who is Number one anointed is the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not become the Son of God by getting anointed, by the way. He did not do that. That is not what happened. And don't let anybody try to tell you otherwise. He has always and was always the Son of God before He came to earth. Let's stop our passage there. Uh, well, verse 11 is right before the paragraph mark. Elkanah went to Ramah to his house. And the child did minister unto the Lord before Eli will pick it up there next time. God, we pray you use these things now, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.